And here we are again with the season four of the Data Science at Home podcast. This time we have something for you. If you want to help us shape the data science leaders of the future, we have created the Data Science at Home's Ambassador program. Ambassadors are volunteers who are passionate about data science and want to give back to our growing community of data science professionals and enthusiasts. You will be instrumental in helping us achieve our goal of raising awareness about the critical role of data science in cutting-edge technologies. If you want to learn more about this program, visit the Ambassadors page on our website at datascienceathome.com. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual office of Amethyx Technologies based in Belgium. In this episode, I want to discuss some of the automated techniques that are used to develop artificial intelligence due to the fact that as artificial intelligence becomes more and more, um, let's say, off the shelf in a way, um, many of the algorithms that were uh, essentially, that became the core of artificial intelligence and in particular in the deep learning uh, field, have now become some sort of uh, state of the art and uh, uh, quite standardized ways of uh, of producing uh, artificial intelligence or whatever we want to call it. But essentially, uh, due to the fact that there are so many moving variables, for example, the topology of the network as well as the number of uh, uh, you know the 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 number of inputs as well as the number of layers, uh, and then of course the learning rate and uh, uh, all the other hyperparameters that you might think of uh, d- when you design a deep learning uh, model. Well, due to all these moving pieces, uh, in fact, it it's become kind of you know an art, a dark art, <laughs> to design the best possible topology that will solve that particular problem with that particular data. And in fact, there is no such formula that would. Uh, uh, allow researchers or practitioners in this case to understand what type of topology one should be using or what's the percentage of dropout uh, for a particular use case, if not by error, trial and error. Uh, that is, of course, running these uh, models over and over again and then apply tiny changes or more or less targeted changes to the topology and to all the other variables. And and essentially that means moving into a dimensional space that is even bigger than the dimensional space of neural networks, which is already very high. If you consider a number of parameters of a a decent network today uh, in pretty much any domain, of course, I'm not generalizing, I'm just trying to give you some tangible (laughs) numbers. Uh, A network with several millions of parameters now, nowadays is no longer a big deal. Uh, we you know, we have been speaking about uh, the the monsters or the beasts of deep learning, like a uh, hundred billion parameters, hundred and seventy five parameters, and we remember the family of GPT models and uh, Dolly and and all the other you know big models that allow us to pretty much have fun online <laughs> or just speak about deep learning in action. Well, these are monsters, and um, uh, except by for these monsters which means that they are in the realm of uh, of hundreds of billions of parameters uh, all the rest are pretty much you know really tiny with respect to those monsters but still pretty large with respect to let's say off the shelf machine learning models 
don't uh, forget that, of course, a very uh, sophisticated or a very deep random forest model would be orders of magnitude smaller than one of the simplest neural networks out there. Now, of course, they would be applied to different use cases, to different type of types of data, uh, and also they might be giving different results uh, depending on, uh, for example, for a computer vision system, you would not definitely not use a random forest. But uh, just to, to give you an idea of what's the, uh, the dimension of these models nowadays. And there is a problem when these things become large. Um, well, there is a problem for practitioners because uh, how do you design something? Is there a tool that would allow you to, let's say, facilitate or give you support in deciding how big or small a particular network should be? How many layers should that network have? And that's when uh, AutoML uh, was born. Uh, AutoML, in fact, AutoML algorithms operate at a level of abstraction uh, that is usually above the uh, machine learning models. Of course, they can be applied to pretty much all machine learning models, not just neural networks. Um, and they usually rely only on the outputs of the model as, you know, as a guide um, to, you know, to guide and indeed to suggest to the practitioner that maybe some, let's say, hyperparameters specific to that particular model should be changed. The problem is that when it comes to neural networks, um, this process uh, is very time-consuming and also burns a lot of resources. And uh, uh, I think we have discussed this uh, long time ago, NAS, which stands for Neural Architecture Search. Uh, there is a technique that allows uh, researchers or practitioners to uh, find out, to discover the best possible uh, topology or neural network for a particular scenario. And how do they do that? Well, by uh, iterating over and over again, uh, you know, observing the outputs, observing uh, some metrics uh, of the training uh, session, um, and understand measuring essentially if the accuracy is moving uh, and uh, what's the magnitude of that movement um, uh, in particular observed from, you know, directly from the output. The problem is that, as I said, this for a relatively large neural network, this becomes uh, sometimes prohibitive. Actually, much many more times than sometimes, <laughs> and it uh, it becomes really prohibitive when, as the networks grow uh, in size and also as the uh, the data set grows in volume. Uh, so. As you can understand, uh, you know, it would be great to have, for example, a technique or a method that allows you to, um, let's say, understand or predict what would be the uh, accuracy of a particular network of which I've changed the topology, I've changed some of the hyperparameters, but I would like to know that accuracy before training, maybe without training, or training a, an infinitesimal amount of data with respect to what I usually do under uh, the NAS technique, right? And this is how zero-cost proxies uh, have been introduced. Uh, there is a very interesting literature. I was pretty unaware of it, um, but I've spent some time trying to, you know, do some, some research of what, uh, what has been published so far. And I should say that, indeed, in the uh, last few years, uh, in fact, it's a pretty new um, methodology or trend, in a way, uh, that I believe is, um, uh, is, raising, is, is raised due to the fact that, indeed, we need to optimize a lot of the, 
of the training process, uh, there, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Uh, we have to uh, save as much as we can uh, computation uh, for the sake of the environment, for the sake of the costs. Training and retraining these neural networks can cost several millions of dollars when you think about you know, the big monsters that I, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And so uh, zero-cost proxies uh, indeed can, at least from, from a theoretical perspective, they can um, uh, solve such a problem, which is the problem of avoiding training the network almost entirely and still understand or predict if that network is going to perform, then change some hyperparameters and run that prediction again in pretty much zero time. <laughs> That's why zero cost. Uh, and understand if that topology uh, indeed would be better than a previous one. So this means that uh, the dimensional space of the problem would be essentially uh, demolished because instead of being in a dimensional space that considers this space of the hyperparameters times this space of the you know the the usual um, uh, parameter space of the uh, of the network that is. Uh, the number of parameters, the weights, etc. In this case, you know, with zero cost, we would just be in front of the uh, hyperparameter dimensional space, which is notoriously much, much smaller, of course, than uh, than the parameter space. Uh, even though there is an infinite number of combinations, uh, you know, in a neural network, how to set the topology of a neural network. Uh, of course, finding a suboptimal in that space would be much, much easier than finding a suboptimal in the parameter space with millions and millions and sometimes billions of parameters. And now, let me tell you something important. Cybercriminals are evolving. Their techniques and tactics are more advanced, intricate, and dangerous than ever before. Industries and governments around the world are fighting back, unveiling new regulations meant to better protect data against this rising threat. Today, the world of cybersecurity compliance is a complex one, and understanding the requirements your organization must adhere to can be a daunting task. But not when the pack has your back. Arctic Wolf, the leader in security operations, is on a mission to end cyber risk by giving organizations the protection, information, and confidence they need to protect their people, technology, and data. Their new interactive compliance portal helps you discover the regulations in your region and industry and start the journey toward achieving and maintaining compliance. Visit arcticwolf.com slash data science to take your first step. That's arcticwolf.com slash data science. So there is a, uh, a taxonomy around the zero-cost proxies. And uh, of course, I will provide some of the links that I have been exploring in these days, uh, which are very interesting and uh, they require a bit, you know. They require some time to digest all that information, but uh, I think it's worth it. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, some other times, some papers don't add anything, you know, super novel, uh, but uh, they help, or at least that happened with me. They helped me um, understanding the background and some of the uh, linear algebra metrics um, uh, that usually researchers are considering for zero-cost proxies. So. Uh, without entering the details, which can be uh, quite intense for a podcast episode, uh, zero-cost proxies have uh, an extremely quick way to estimate the performance of neural network architectures. And so uh, the method essentially computes statistics from uh, usually a forward pass 
of a single mini batch of data. Um, and this means that, you know, in fact, it's not exactly zero cost. It's really negligible with respect to the entire training process. Uh, and so that's why it's zero, you know, metaphorically speaking. If you want to say zero from an engineering standpoint, of course, it's not. But uh, as I said, it's nothing with respect to uh, what the neural network should train uh, for real. Now, of course, there are uh, different groups or different ways to, let's say, categorize uh, zero-cost proxies. Um, of course, uh, the two major ones are data-independent and data-dependent. And based on these two, let's say, categories, uh, they measure different things, of course, because in the first group, of course, we have zero-cost proxies that are data-independent, which means that they don't rely on the data set on the input data set uh, to measure the quality of a particular network and so one would say how does that happen like how can a um, a method uh, ignore the data completely to understand if a particular network is uh, in fact better than another and well uh, there are some uh, um, techniques that use for example synthetic proxy tasks um, to estimate uh, the ability of the particular architecture to capture, uh, for example, different types of uh, sign frequencies, to capture scale invariances, spatial information. So if you are dealing with, for example, a problem in which all these things are indeed involved, uh, for example, spatial information can be involved for uh, several things, even computer vision, uh, as well as GIS systems, uh, scale invariances for images for sure, uh, and sign frequencies uh, for some sort of encoding. But, you know, usually these synthetic um, um, proxies, proxy tasks, are usually present uh, in the natural, let's say, uh, environment. Uh, so when you have a network that is indeed um, being trained for a particular, you know, for a real uh, uh, use case, most of the time, you know, the network has to have the ability to um, to capture sign frequencies, scale invariances, and spatial information. So researchers understood that, we all know that, in fact, and said, okay, how about creating these things synthetically and evaluate without data? Uh, another very important metric that is used is, of course, the number of parameters in the network. Um, and yet another one is uh, a way to approximate the neural network by uh, piecewise linear functions that are usually conditioned on uh, the activation patterns uh, of the network. So these are all, uh, of course, uh, synthetic measures. They, you know, they are exasperated in a way uh, during training, you know, during the assessment of the, you know, the quality of the neural network. And that's why we call these zero-cost proxies data independent, because they do not need the presence of the data. The second category, as you can imagine, is the data-dependent uh, zero-cost proxies. Um, and here is where, of course, the uh, methodology considers the uh, initial data, the input data. Now, of course, when we say input data, again, it's a tiny fraction of the entire data set because we still want the methods to be a zero-cost um, approach, which means that we still need to have a negligible time that passes to understand and to assess these uh, metrics. And yet the metrics can be completely different. For example, there are techniques that measure the uh, intra and interclass correlations um, of the prediction uh, Jacobian matrices. Uh, there are 
uh, of course, number of flops, uh, floating point operations to pass the input through the network. That gives already an idea of uh, how complex the network is from the input to the output layer. Um, there is a technique that sums the Euclidean norm of the gradients. Um, another technique that performs an approximation of the neural network uh, Gaussian process using uh, Monte Carlo methods, which is usually a much cheaper measure of performance, and so on and so forth. So these are more techniques that look at, of course, uh, you know, the data in the sense that they let the data pass through in a forward pass, uh, usually uh, very minimal amount of batches, usually one, and uh, and then they start calculating metrics. Uh, that uh, depend, of course, on the particular methodology. Now, does this work? <laughs> well, uh, there is a very interesting work, kind of a review of all these methods in action. And um, some researchers have come to the conclusion that across a wide range of tasks, there is no single zero-cost proxy that performs significantly better than the others. So pretty much they are uh, performing the same, uh, you know, statistically, uh, of course. Um, another point that is quite important to, uh, to mention is that zero-cost proxies still require research uh, because, you know, flops, uh, floating-point operations, a number of parameters alone are usually consistent, are usually quite competitive baselines. So one would say, why should I complicate my life with uh, a zero-cost proxy methodology if num uh, number of floating-point operations and number of parameters are both uh, a pretty good baseline? They give me a decent um, uh, measure of how that network is performing or will perform. Um, so, of course, you know, my conclusion is that, at least from the literature I've been reading, is that zero-cost proxies... Um, are an interesting approach. The idea, of course, is uh, amazing. Um, it's the uh, execution that probably doesn't match the, the idea or the power uh, of the idea, uh, which is great. And that happens in research. Um, but I believe that probably using zero-cost proxies together with other methods, for example, uh, model-based predictions usually, or one-shot training as well, uh, maybe uh, they can help improving the performance uh, of uh, uh, the NAS uh, neural architecture search techniques that uh, are already in place. Um, or they can just give some more robustness to those uh, existing methodologies. Of course, I'm not an expert. I admit that uh, I'm just, you know, reframing a bit the literature that I've been exploring in the last few days or weeks. Uh, it has been a nice journey, to be honest. Uh, very interesting stuff. I hope you find as interesting as I did, of course. That's it for today. Don't forget to drop by our Discord channel. Uh, you will find the link on the official website, datascienceathome.com. Speak with you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.